Hello and welcome to Renewing Hope Church in Oceanside, California, where our mission is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that this episode will both challenge and encourage you to love more. And now, here's today's episode. Just uh, so grateful to, you know, be here with you guys and be a part of this church and all that God's doing and what he's going to do. And um, yeah, you know, it's, I'm also very humbled to be able to teach on uh, this particular topic. It's been near and dear to my heart as well for, for several years. Um, so tonight and moving ahead in the next, you know, couple of weeks as we approach eschatology or the study of, of the end times. And I just want to acknowledge, right, that there's probably a, a vast array of um, experiences in this room as it relates to the topic. Maybe you've never actually, you know, read a single verse, you know, about what the Bible says about, about the end, you know, but you hear things, right? You got, uh, oh, the tribulation or the Antichrist or the day of the Lord, this judgment that's coming. And it makes you very uneasy. It creates angst. And you just kind of like, oh, I don't want to go there, right? Or maybe you have done some, some level of a deep dive and you formulated some thoughts or positions you know, about the topic. But I just want to say this, like eschatology, studying of the end is not designated for advanced Christians. Okay. It's for everybody. It really is. And it should be. This is a very important topic. We're talking about the coming of the Lord. We're talking about Jesus returning, establishing his kingdom, right? Doing away with this wicked and and evil world. You know, this is good news. All right. So just don't be intimidated. You know, it's, it's, it really is for everyone. Um, a couple of things I was thinking about, I, my, one of my prayers is that, you know, after we go through this series, uh, three things that you would, you would have confidence, you would grow in your confidence. Anytime we are approaching the word of God, right, and we're digging in, we grow in our confidence, we grow in our understanding of his word, you know, and it, it just, it builds us up, you know, and so just, just growing in your confidence, thinking about, you know, the coming of Jesus you know, this is something to um, be excited about and that you can count on it that the Lord is going to make good on what he says in his word. You know, secondly, clarity. This is a big one because you see out in the news, right? Um, you know, the, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I, like, so as you have clarity, you say, actually, that's not at all what Revelation chapter 13 says. You know, so as you grow in your understanding and your knowledge of what God actually says about these things, that fear, that angst, the, the headlines, you, you grow in your peace because you know what, what the Lord actually says about these things. And then lastly, conviction. There's no doubt that as you start to study eschatology, there's a conviction that overwhelms you, right? We do in church, um, particularly in the Western church, we talk a lot about Jesus as our friend, Um, As our Savior, you know, the author and perfecter of our faith. These are all true and very important things. But we don't talk about the Jesus in Revelation 19. The one coming on on a horse with a sword, with blazing, fiery eyes. And what is he coming to do? It says he's coming to wage war. He's coming to make war. This is the Jesus that we don't really talk about a lot. And so we desire to teach the whole gospel from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And so as you you grow in your understanding and you become convicted, it's like this sense of urgency. 
you know, overcomes you to share the gospel with your family, to share the gospel with your friends, you know. So confidence, clarity, and conviction, these are things that I think you're going to walk away with. So um, let me pray, and then we'll kind of we'll get started. Uh, Father, I just I thank you for everybody here. God, I just pray now that you would bring revelation, Lord, that um, there would just be new things through your word that would be understood and that we would grow as we grow in our knowledge and as we grow in understanding that we would grow in our love for others. Lord, we would grow in our, our love and desire for you and just proclaim Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. So we give you tonight in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I gotta lay some foundation before we get into Daniel chapter two. Okay, so I'm going to be taking a futurist pre-millennial position. Okay, so if you've never heard those terms, here is what that means. Uh, we believe uh, the testimony of the prophets, the words of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. We take the biblical text in a literal form. So when Revelation chapter 20 says that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years on this earth with the saints, we interpret that as a literal thousand year period. And the events leading up to that. So when we talk about things like the seven year tribulation, halfway through when things get kind of really uh, difficult, the great tribulation, the person of the Antichrist, right? Uh, Isaiah and Micah refer to him as the Assyrian, Daniel, the little horn, uh, the apostle Paul, the man of lawlessness, Revelation, he's referred to as the beast. We believe this is a singular, specific, political and religious leader that's going to emerge out of the Middle East. Spoiler alert. Okay? So we, we take the text in a literal form. That is what, these are events leading up. They are prior to that millennial period, the millennial reign of Jesus. So those are what those terms mean. Now, I, I want you to be informed. We're not going to go into detail of the other positions that are out there because it's important to be gracious and speak to other believers um, with dignity and respect. The other positions, it's a minority view, okay, are referred to as amillennialism and preterism, okay? And basically, amillennialism, ah, saying, meaning no, there is no actual thousand-year reign of Jesus. They see that as a, uh, a figurative or symbolic number, but it's not an actual thousand-year reign. They believe we are in the millennium now, okay? So... No tribulation, no antichrist, Jesus returns, judges nations, new heaven, new earth, okay? So there's things then need to become symbolic all over the place, and it's, a lot of things are kind of shoehorned in. All right, the other uh, point is preterism. Preterism basically seeks to explain the testimony of the prophets in a historical sense. So as we go through Bible prophecy, all these things have been fulfilled, okay? And in all fairness, there's these you know, partial preterists, um, but really their belief is that when, in 70 AD, when the second temple was destroyed, that God had divorced himself from Israel. He's going to renege on his promises made in the covenants. That's where they, they rest. Okay. And with all due respect, this is a, this is a false teaching. It is. Okay. And it's all rooted in this idea of replacement theology. All right, I know I'm jumping around a bit. I'm going to summarize it all. But basically, amillennialism and preterism are rooted in replacement theology or supersessionism, which basically states that we as the Gentile church, we as um, you know, non-Jewish people essentially, 
We are the true church. We are the new church, okay? And that God is basically, um, you know, abandoning his, his promises that he made to the Hebrew people, to the nation of Israel. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty rough deal. Um, so you may say, well, how did these positions even come about? You know, where did amillennialism or preterism, you know, how did, how did this replacement theology come about? And a, a lot of bad teaching that, that comes through the church is injected, right? It's injected into the bloodstream of the church. And this goes back way early on, okay? We're talking like right after, uh, you know, Jesus ascended, some of this teaching started taking place. I've got some quotes I'm going to read that are kind of, uh, they may be surprising, to you, some of these names. I was going to read more, but I'm just going to give you a couple. Okay, this is kind of the roots of supersessionism, the roots of where replacement theology kind of came about. So Augustine, AD 415, okay? Uh, huge church father, one of the most important theologians in all of church history. He said this about the Jews. How hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture, How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. Gladly would I have them die to themselves and live to you. Martin Luther, A.D. 1543, the great Protestant reformer, in a book titled, The Jews and Their Lies, he made some of the following statements among many other insults. Luther described Jews as a base Whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. He also wrote that the blind Jews are truly stupid fools, lazy rogues, nothing but thieves and robbers, miserable and accursed, and rejected and condemned people. Their synagogues, he said, were a den of devils in which sheer self-glory, conceit, Lies, blasphemy, and defaming of God occur. A.D. 1560, John Calvin. There, the Jews, rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. John Calvin. These are the works of some of our early church fathers, right? You can see why it's uh, very difficult to help a Jewish person become a Messianic Jew, right? The oppression, the anti-Semitism that's been rooted through the church, it led to Hitler killing six million Jews. This is what we're dealing with. This is why I draw the the line in the sand when it comes to, I can speak to folks from a different position, the amillennials, the preterists, about, okay, well, who they think this kingdom was, but at its core, it's rooted in this idea that the Lord is not going to make good on some promises that he made specifically to the nation of Israel, okay? We're about to look at some of those promises, and then we'll get started. But I want to say this. I need to pause. The centrality of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, in the testimony of the prophets and in the Bible, is absolutely undeniable. So we need to kind of like take off our our Western eyes for a moment. And we need to, like Corey was saying, we're going to be looking at specific nations um, that aren't here. 
And it's very easy as, you know, in the Western world specifically, like, where do we fit in? Like, what's our part? And that is totally fair. We, we want to understand, Lord, what is, what is your plan for us and in our life? What's your purpose, you know, for us as, as Gentiles? You know, we have a big responsibility. We're going to see that in a moment. But um, so we need to look at the Abrahamic covenant for, for just a moment, okay? So the Lord in Genesis chapter 12, he makes an initial set of promises to Abram. So Genesis 12, 2 through 3. If you got the, the app, the Bible app, it's already loaded on there. If you got your Bible, awesome. Here's what the Lord said. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what does he say? He says he's going to make him a great nation. Check. Yes. Bless you personally. He sure did. Make your name great. You betcha. Jews, Muslims, Christians, all hold the name of Abraham high. Bless those who bless you. Absolutely. Curse those who cursed him. Absolutely. And still coming. Nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Yes. This is where we come in. This is that promise where we as Gentiles have been grafted in. You know, uh, in Galatians 3, Paul summarized what Abram said, what, or what the Lord said to Abraham. He said this, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, in terms of this blessing to additional nations. He said, Just as Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. He's referring back, right, to the initial promises. Uh, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we as Gentiles... um, this is our extension, right? We now, we are saved by our faith in Jesus, period, done. So you may say, well, yeah, the covenant, it was completely fulfilled. Not so. The covenant would expand. And this is very, very important and very specific when we talk about eschatology. It's absolutely imperative that you understand this. So the covenant is expanded in Genesis chapter 15, 18 through 21. Here we go. This is a specific land given specifically to Abraham and his seed. Okay? He said, or this is in Genesis. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Wow, that is a lot. Bless you. So where are these lands? Because you're looking at that, and you probably, when I first looked at them, had no clue. So here is this specific land that was given to Abraham and his seed, essentially the nation of Israel. From the Mediterranean Sea in the west to the Euphrates River in the northeast, to the river of Egypt in the southwest, Also included in the present-day names is the Sinai Desert, much of Lebanon, large segment of southern Syria, large portion of Jordan, all of the Golan Heights, West Bank, and Gaza. Okay? Israel has never, ever 
occupied that land. Even in the days of Solomon, they have never, this piece of the covenant is number one, it's independent of anything that was transferred to the church. This is specific to Abraham, to his seed, to the nation of Israel. And they have never, ever occupied that territory in its whole. So this part of the covenant is still outstanding, right? And so God is not a liar. He's a promise keeper and he's going to keep his promises. Okay. So this is very important to understand because as you read through the testimony of the prophets and you're reading through the biblical text, you're going to see this, this regathering of the nation of Israel. And you start to look at it and you're going, what's all this business about? You know, and there's a specific purpose that God has for the nation of Israel and for all of us, right? As, as believers in Jesus. But we, we got to understand that this, this is, it's still outstanding and he's not done. And then, boy, in 1948, guess what happened? The nation of Israel is rebirthed. It's a really big deal, right? They're back on the map. Because for a lot of years, all these, these guys and the you know, folks that were talking about, you know, making this case for replacement theology, there was no Israel, right? So they had a pretty strong argument, you know? Well, now Israel's back. And it's starting to kind of, starting to line up. A lot of things are starting to line up. So the covenant uh, that he made with Abraham is unconditional. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It designates a very specific land to Israel and to a very specific people. Um, The Lord said in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are still in existence, he promised he would preserve the nation of Israel. You know, that's a big promise. Um, you know, Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul, you know, really lays it down pretty good here. Um, this is what he says. This is sort of this mystery of the Gentiles and, and you know, the understanding that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He says, lest you be wise. This is Romans eleven twenty-five through 29. In fact, I encourage you, study Romans 9, Romans chapter 9 through 11. Super important. Here we go. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A what? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? Until all, the, all souls are saved that the Lord foreknew, right? Until all the Gentile nations are reached, there's been a partial hardening. There's this partial hardening on the Jewish people right now, on the nation of Israel. And until the Gentile, all the Gentiles has come in, what happens after that? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's this corporate salvation moment for the nation of Israel. Zechariah, he says in chapter 12, they, looked, they, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn, right? They're gonna realize, oh my gosh, right? They look upon the one whom they, they have pierced and all Israel will be saved. There's this final moment. So as we kind of move on, understand this, you know, be very comfortable with a premillennial futurist position, okay? It's biblical. The Testament of the Prophets, we study eschatology, you know, certainly in Revelation, there, it's, it's far more subjective in terms of, well, what is this symbol? What could it mean, etc.? But God tells the same story through and through, throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the end of the age. 
okay? So now we're going to get into it. Let's, uh, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to go to verse 27 to start. So here's the backdrop. Daniel, by the way, incredible man. Uh, lived sometime between 620 B.C. and 535 B.C., he was just a young boy, young man, when he was, you know, taken into Babylonian captivity. Um, uh, man of integrity, honor. Uh, the, the, the Lord used him mightily. The book of Daniel is literally a manual for the end times church. Um, it's so foundational for everything that, you know, when you start to, to study the end, Daniel is, is just super foundational. And um, the Lord just, he, he was just, he's incredible. He, he never compromised his faith in God. You know, when he's told not to pray, he still prayed. But he served the king. He served three kings, you know. And uh, he just, just an amazing, amazing man. So in chapter 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying dream. And so he rounds up the magicians, the astrologers, um, you know, the sorcerers. And, and he's like, you know, interpret my dream for me and I'll... I'll Make you wealthy. He gives, you know, basically gives them these, these promises. And they're like, yeah, we can do it, and nobody can do it. Nebuchadnezzar gets pretty angry, and he says out an order to kill all the wise men in Babylon. So one of his captains comes up to Daniel, and Daniel's like, hey, what's all the fuss about? What's going down? And the captain's like, look, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. Nobody could interpret it, and he's angry, and he wants to kill all you guys. So Daniel's like, hey, wait up a minute, all right? I serve a Lord that is mighty, and perhaps he will show me the interpretation of the dream, okay? So Daniel, he goes, he sleeps, and God shows him Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So then he shows up, uh, he's brought to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And that's where we're going to pick up. So verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in what? In the latter days. I'm reading from the New King James, but anytime you see the expression latter days, it's referring to the end times. So you know right away that this is important as it relates to eschatology, okay? Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed and about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Here we go. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out with hands, which struck the image on its feet, of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. Mountain synonymous. Often mountains are used to describe kingdoms. A great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right. So he, here, that's the dream, right? So you got this statue. You got this head of gold. You got this chest and arms of silver. Uh, you got a, a belly and thighs of bronze. And you got these legs of iron and these feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then you got this stone that's pulled out and it crushes the feet and the whole statue crumbles. All right, so that's, that's the dream. That's the image. That's what we're talking about. And it has latter day implications. So let's see what it means. Fortunately, he's gonna tell them. And my eyes are getting so bad, I need a flashlight. All right, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell are the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Okay, mystery revealed. We know that the first part of the statue, the head of gold, is King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian Empire. All right? Next up, verse 39. But after you, so we know that now we're moving to the next part, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom, which kingdom? The fourth kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. All right, we're going to pause right here. So no matter what Bible commentary you, you read, the, the first three parts of the statue most agree on, okay? And in fact, well, I'll tell you in a second. All right, so we know that King Nebuchadnezzar's the, the head of gold, all right? And then it says, after you. Well, the Medo-Persian Empire is, is next, okay? They conquered the Babylonian Empire. So you got the Medo-Persians representing the, uh, the chest and, and the arms of silver, all right? In fact, we see in Daniel 8 and 10, Medo-Persia is actually mentioned by name. Um, the third part of the statue can be understood as Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, okay? And we get more details. You may say, well, you know, this came up recently. Well, how do you know that those are the kingdoms, all right? How do you know that the, the other, you know, that Medo-Persia and the Greek are number two and three? Well, we get more detail in Daniel 7. And again, Medo-Persia and Greek are both named specifically in Daniel 8 and Daniel 10. So you got Babylonia, you got the Medo-Persian, and you got the Greek. Now, the fourth kingdom, which crushed, right? It crushed the prior three, has been an issue of debate over time, all right? The traditional view, you probably, in your Bibles, it may say Rome, right? The Roman Empire was the fourth one, okay? But when you start to scratch the surface, you will see that the Roman Empire doesn't fit the description. It just doesn't. I'm gonna look at that in a second. 
And I want to be very careful. You know, when you break from tradition, right? I'm a big, I love tradition. My family growing up like Christmas, we had, we had the same tradition. We woke up, we read the story, uh, Jesus's birth in Luke. Okay. My dad's like, Hey, I got to go pick up the reindeer droppings on top of the roof. You know, that was, he always said the same thing every year. I'm like, okay, dad's take care of the reindeer stuff up, up top. All right. Then we rush in and, and we do presents. And then my grandfather called typically sometime around 930 or 10 and said, where are you guys? Because then all of us, all my cousins, aunt and uncles, we all gathered to grandpa and grandma's house, you know, and, and gathered up. We had uh, omelets in the morning. Um, we played games all day. We did presents. We had chili at night. And that was a wrap. And we did that for every single Christmas. So tradition is very important. When you look at the Bible and you look at Bible commentaries and and, and people that have worked through these scriptures, it's important to be respectful of tradition, okay? So if we are going to break tradition, like for me, breaking from Christmas tradition, there had to be like a really good, you know, uh, alternative. When I got married, like the Christmas, you know, what are we going to do on Christmas? That was like a hard conversation, you know? Um, so anyways, we want to be respectful and mindful of tradition. But when we look at the text, and this is something that that scholars have noticed for a long time. But in the last 20 years, this alternative fourth kingdom has really come up and people are like, aha, okay, we're going to get into that. So how did, how does Rome not fit um, the description? Well, verse 40 says that it crushes, it crushes and breaks in pieces all of the others. Okay. So it's this crushing, uh, force. Skipping ahead real quick, Daniel 7, 23, if I can get there. Oh, I'm I'm offline. I just want to read because this is the same kingdom we're talking about in Daniel 7, um, 23. It's the same legs of iron in Daniel 2. Here's what it says about that fourth. It's uh, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the others and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. So we have this all-encompassing force, okay? So let's talk about this. Did Rome crush the previous three empires? Well, I know you guys can't see it. We were supposed to have it up here, but the projector's down. So check this out, if you can see this. This is historical Babylonian empire, okay? So we're gonna see, did Rome crush geographically? It's one way to look at it. So here's the Babylonian empire as a point of reference um, here's the Caspian Sea. So Babylonian Empire, next up. Medo-Persian Empire. You can see, here's the Caspian Sea. Fully absorbed, conquered, you know, definitely uh, succeeded the Babylonian Empire. So next up, Medo-Persia. Next up, we have uh, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. He just, he crushed a whole bunch of land. This guy was unreal. Not in a good way, he, yeah. Um, here's the Caspian Sea, again, the uh, Greek Empire crushed the prior lands. Now, Rome. Here's that Caspian Sea. Hardly touched any uh, of the eastern portion of those lands. In fact, Rome only conquered one-third of the lands of the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and the Greek empires. One-third. Hey, to say that, that Rome crushed Geographically, that'd be like saying, you know, there's this invading army that came into uh, San Diego and crushed uh, Encinitas and Carlsbad and Oceanside and Escondido and San Marcos, crushed all that. 
That empire crushed all of San Diego. That would not be a fair statement, right? So Rome definitely did not crush and does not fit the description. So let's expand. Let's say, well, what about like uh, culturally? You know, did Rome, it sounds like this fourth kingdom, right? That the legs of iron just tramples and just destroys everything. So did they crush culturally? No, Rome was very tolerant of other cultures. In fact, they were very influenced by the cultures that they conquered. You know, Greek was a, a language that flourished throughout the, the empire. You know, they were very tolerant of, you know, yes, they, when, when revi- uh, these rebellions would, uh, you know, hop up, they would definitely squash them. But all in all, uh, Rome did not crush these other empires geographically, culturally, language, certainly not religiously. So it doesn't fit the description here. Okay. So which, which kingdom does, which empire does, who is this fourth kingdom? It's the Islamic Caliphate, the Islamic empire. Okay. Before I show you the map of the land they crushed, if this is a, a, an issue, if you just think Islamic caliphate, what are you talking about? Islam's a religion. Islam is far more than just religion, okay? And like Corey said, this is not an anti-Muslim message. This is very important that you understand this. But when we look at Islam, it is an all-destroying, um, absorbing, historical kingdom, okay? The Islamic caliphate, the caliphate is simply uh, synonymous with government. Okay, so the caliphate is just the Islamic government, and the caliph was the king, all right? And from 632, just after Muhammad died, all the way until 1923, there was this continuation. You know, the caliphate essentially, um, it continued into the Ottoman Empire, all right? And it, it lasted all that, that time. So, you know, they, they went out and, and they conquered all of the land. Um, and I'll just show you a map. Here's uh, the Islamic Caliphate at its height. You see it absorbed all of the land, certainly east of the Caspian Sea. And then the later expansion moved into all of the western portion of all of the prior kingdoms. So in terms of the description in Daniel 240, from a geographical standpoint, a far better uh, candidate, if you would, to, to fit that description. So we see the legs of iron as the Islamic empire, okay? So, you know, and here's, here's the reality. Look, at Muhammad, when he, when he was going around, they would go from village, they would get into territories. They basically, they had four, if, if you were on the receiving end of, of their invasions, you basically had a few options. One, convert to Islam. Two, acknowledge that Muhammad uh, was the prophet specifically from Allah. Three, pay a tax. And if you don't like any of those options, you go to war and you can count on dying. Okay, that's how Islam spread. It's, it's the reality of it, okay? So it's, it's best to understand religiously, absolutely. You know, you look at the Middle East now. It is predominantly a Muslim uh, area of the world. Language, Arabic, spread everywhere. So it's an all-consuming, it crushed all of the prior empires. So we got head of gold, uh, Babylonian, we got the uh, chest, right? Arms of silver, Medo-Persian. We got belly, thighs, uh, a bronze, the Greek. 
And the legs of iron can be best understood as the Islamic empire or the Islamic kingdom, okay? Now, we're just gonna keep moving here through the text. So then we see that there's this extension of the legs of iron into the feet. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, this kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Okay, so these feet of iron and clay can be best understood as phase two of the legs of iron. Okay, so sort of this revived version of the fourth part of the statue. Okay, and we're going to see more detail in Daniel 7, but... You know, and many scholars throughout, you know, history would say, oh, it's going to be a revived Roman Empire. But as we look at it, as we look at the description, this part, so we have phase one, legs of iron, the Islamic kingdom. Phase two will be a revived Islamic kingdom, a revived Islamic caliphate, okay, in the last days. This is going to be the satanic empire that comes against the nation of Israel in the last days. All right, we get, again, more description, Daniel 7 about these 10 nations that are going to join, right, this political religious figure that's going to merge in and out of uh, this revived empire, okay? One other thing I'll touch on. It says that it was, it's a divided kingdom. So, you know, uh, scholars have argued that, you know, the, the Roman position or the Roman empire, well, they had the Western and the Eastern legion. Well, you know, the Western legion of the Roman empire was like 27 BC, and it lasted till like 475, 476 uh, AD. All right. And the Eastern part was 330 AD through 1453 AD. So there really wasn't much of a division. We had like a 140 year gap. All right. Not, you know, I considered it, I've considered all these things, but not much division. Now, if we look at it, if we look at Islam from its beginning, after Muhammad died, you know, the, the Shia said, you know, his successor, the next caliph, should basically come from his, his bloodline, his relatives, all right? And the Sunnis were like, ah, could be just a companion, right? So there was already this division, and I encourage you, study Islam. Um, you know, you'll see just, in the last days, we see that this, this revived part of the uh, empire, right? Ezekiel and Zechariah both say that these, they're gonna turn on each other, and they're gonna kill one another. So again, it, it, it's, uh, they've, they've been a divided you know, um, entity, if you would, all these years. And it's going to take one person, this anti-Christic figure, that's going to unite all of them, you know, in the, in the last days. This, again, this revived Islamic kingdom. Um, here's the deal. This is my favorite part. So just in summary, we are, it's best understood that the fourth part of the statue, the legs of iron, is the Islamic Caliphate, the Islamic Kingdom. The feet of iron and clay are a revived version, okay? 
These two are absolutely connected. You're gonna see as we continue to study Daniel, they're absolutely connected, all right? But here's the best part. You know, this stone that is cut out without hands and goes and crushes all of these, you know, empires. I love that that's how the story ends, you know? I love that Jesus is coming and he's gonna establish his millennial reign, you know? So, anyhow, we, uh, we covered a lot. We covered a lot tonight, um, but it's, this is, this is kind of setting the foundation. Obviously, it's a history lesson for, for many, you know, but uh, just know that I, I, this is purely speculative. I believe we are in the generation of the Lord's return. I believe that God is, is revealing some of the mysteries of the testimony of the prophets you know, to, to this age, you know, preparing us for the age to come. And it is important. I, I think God is, um, he's, he's opening up the minds and the hearts of people that are diligently searching the scriptures, you know, and, and that's what we're committed to do, you know, to get into the weeds, you know, on, on this stuff. So, um, yeah, let me just pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you, Jesus, just for, for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Um, thank you that you've included us, God, into um, your plan, into your promises. God, as we study, um, you know, your, your sort of final theater, um, Lord, help it to, to comfort us. Lord, help us as we grow in our knowledge and grow in our understanding that we would grow in our love and our comfort for others. God, we, we know that you have a plan and Lord, we just, we want to understand it and we want to understand, Lord, what is our purpose in all of this? So God, I pray that um, you would just be with everyone um, uh, as they absorb this information and as we carry on, God, um, just be with us in our hearts and our minds as we study uh, this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to Renewing Hope Church. May God's love for you renew your hope today, and may His face shine upon you and give you peace. If you need prayer or would like to reach out to us, you can do so at our website, renewinghope.church. Until next time, 